Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Precision Microcast with Josh Hacko and Adam Demuth. This week on the Precision Microcast, Josh and I talk about a small wire EDM solution from Makino. We look at the process for making watchmaking ruby bearings, and we talk about some of the problems we face in our shops with precision. We hope you enjoy episode four of the Precision Microcast. This week on our Precision Machine segment, we have a slightly unusual machine. Unusual in many ways, but one in that it's made by Makino, who is very popular for their milling machines, but this is a wire EDM machine. You'd be surprised to know, or at least some of you might be surprised to know, that Makino makes some of the most accurate wire EDM machines in the market. I know that Adam's had some sort of uh, interaction maybe with some Makino milling machines, is that right? Yeah, the V22 is pretty popular in my industry. Um, Most of the V series and the F series. Uh, You see the RAM EDM machines a lot, but uh, Mm -hmm. up until recently, I hadn't seen a Makino wire in person. But a shop I used to deal with a lot had just bought four of the U6s. And uh, they phased out a lot of their Mitsubishi wire EDMs and went to the Makino specifically because the Makino manages wire consumption better and there's less maintenance. Mm-hmm. And with one machine, it's not that big of an annual cost, but when you have four machines running, those are contributing factors. So um, I was I was curious about why, and I, I found those to be pretty interesting answers. Yeah, it's bizarre because Makino tend to span the whole industry segment in terms of accuracy in the wire EDM machine market. They have um, the U6 heat uh, machine, which is kind of, I mean, it's still accurate, but it's a a bandsaw. It's really designed for, yeah, it's a bandsaw. That's exactly what it's mainly used for. I think from my, you know, very brief discussion on it with, with the Makino sales rep, I think it was designed for um, sort of delaminating 3d printed, uh, metal, I don't know, forms, I guess, from their from their base plate. Uh, so you put this whole thing up on on like a on like a ninety degree plate, and you just bandsaw off the three D printed part. And a university here in Sydney just bought two, I think, or maybe just one of them, um, specifically for that. Yeah, they don't tell you that. With metal 3D printing, uh, you have to have a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar machine just to remove it from the build plate. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, you're starting to actually see horizontal orientation wire machines become more popular for removing from build plates. So, I find... But, uh, uh, yeah, like the U6, I think, also sees... Or the U3 even sees some medical parts uh, where finished parts Mm -hmm. are getting some wire operations or... So I, I always think it's wire EDM is like a tool and die application, but you they get a lot of use in medical and aer, aerospace work as well. Yeah, my biggest complaint with wire EDM is that the there doesn't seem to be a hole drilling and uh, wire EDM machine in one. And to me, that would just make so much sense, you know? Say, boo, it's an option. The machine can pull oh, really? and then thread. Yeah, it's... um. It looked a little janky, like it, it's just kind of grafted onto the head of the machine. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I did find that interesting that somebody's gone through with that. But Cebu is an interesting company, and you don't really see much in the U.S. They're starting to permeate the market, but uh, they invented the CNC wire EDM, and I don't know why they don't have more clout. I know very little about Cebu. It's, it's kind of... You see it maybe like once or twice? They have a some kind of relationship with FANUC where they develop technology which they sell or trade to FANUC for FANUC's line of wire EDMs. In return, they get the latest and greatest motion control from FANUC. I, I think a lot of the Japanese machine tool builders operate in some sort of cottage industry format. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, Fanuc aside, who I think manufacture nearly everything in their machine, uh, I think it's fairly common for, you know, Hasegawa or 
uh, Mitsui Seiki to borrow things from other often quite similar machine tool manufacturers in return for something else, just like you said. So I'm not too surprised. Uh, but back onto this Makino machine, um, it's called the UPN01. And uh, it's, I would say, in the upper echelon of their YREDM machine tier in terms of accuracy. Uh, so as a quick sort of rundown, Makino have the U6 and the U3 heat machines and the only difference between them are kind of like the the table formats and the travels then you go to the um <clears throat> excuse me you go to the u32j and u53j machines and they are i guess um the higher accuracy spec machines uh tighter pitch ball screws uh different generators with um different circuits on them slightly different machining technologies and then you move to the UPV range which is just the same as a, a J machine except it has uh, an oil dielectric instead of a water-based dielectric and then up on that top level you have the UPN machine uh, and up until recently there was a UPH which was kind of the predecessor to the UPN and the biggest claim to fame I think with this machine is that it is also a, as we mentioned just a little bit before, a horizontal wire EDM. And you very rarely see those sort of machines in the market. And I think that's what is kind of like the most interesting thing about this, but it doesn't stop there. It's got plenty of different um, little tidbits and uh, quirks to it. What's, what's one that stands out to you, Adam? Uh, I always like the idea of oil machines, and I, I find it interesting that when you get into the really fine accuracy and surface finish work, they're almost strictly oil. Um, you know, mess aside, it, it actually has a lot of benefits. Most of the time when you're doing EDM work, it leaves like a slight layer of recast around the feature you're cutting. And so the way we would always combat it is you wouldn't quite grind your plate to finish thickness. You'd leave a few tenths on it or a few microns. You'd EDM your pocket and then you'd dust it off and then you had just a really stellar looking part. Whereas with oil, you avoid a lot of that. Um, your part comes out looking great. You don't have any discoloration from sitting in water for 30 hours. And, uh, I, I just feel like it, it makes a better part, solves a lot of issues, allows you to get into PCD, does a better job with carbide, not depleting cobalt. So I, I like seeing that companies still do oil machines because for the most part, the industry is kind of pushed towards the water. Yeah, the, the real big um, trump that water has over uh, oil is just speed. Water's a little bit quicker. And I say a little bit, but the cycle times are so large that it actually makes a substantial difference. You know, we talk about 20%. That's maybe the little bit, but that's hours and hours on a, on a big plate or something like that. And uh, now with the newer machines, with um, dual voltage uh, generator controllers and the real selling point for some of the newer Makino machines is their inverse polarity um, finish pass which uh, is super interesting because you can get a much tighter surface finish than you could previously with water machines and so what I'm trying to say is that water is kind of edging its way towards oil but there's there's no way that um, you'll ever compete when it comes to the PCD and the, and the carbide cutting simply because of the electrochemical erosion of the material that's being cut. Another really interesting thing for me was that this machine is on aerostatic bearings. So the linear motion is driven by a linear motor and the guide or the guidance for the linear motion is purely aerostatic. So I don't know too many machines that are aerostatic. Do you, does any come to mind? No, most of the time it just jumps straight to hydrostatic. Um, I'd be curious to see what the ways are. Is it like a monolithic granite bed or or is there some kind of bolted on way rail that's aerostatic 
I'd like to see how all that works. I don't have an opinion one way or the other. I'm just very curious. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I think we should probably get in touch with all of these machine tool makers and ask for all of their CAD data so we can just pour over yeah. it before commenting on their frames yeah. and all the rest. <laughs> sure, the Japanese will be very forthcoming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, I The only kind of aerostatic systems that I've seen are those sort of um, trade demos with like the graphite hockey pucks um, that are porous and yeah. they just pump air through it and slide it across. And it seems it seems very kind of frictionless, but I don't know about the accuracy. Uh, I've dealt with some inspection equipment that was aerostatic. It was made by Coons. I mean, most CMMs are aerostatic at some point, but uh, these were just like square gauges, whereas a granite column and then... These were actually kind of weird. They're both vacuum and aerostatic. So it would slide into position, and then when you released pressure, it would vacuum. Um, but it, uh, it, with like a mechanical sliding square checker, you'd always see like a little hysteresis and a little needle movement when you reverse direction, where the aerostatic, it was very, very stable way to measure. So I, I really liked it in the metrology world. So I'm sure it has some benefits in low cutting for CDM work. And that's a really good point um, that I thought of when I saw this machine. It's less of a machining center of definitely on the, on the less of a machining center in the practical terms of machining center. But even on the YEDM level of machining center, it's less of a machining center and more of a piece of metrology equipment. Um, the, the specification and the sort of um, thermal management around the whole system, it, you'd almost think that you wouldn't even cut anything on the machine because the stiffness, obviously, with an aerostatic system is not super high. And mm -hmm. uh, the torque um, delivery on a linear motor, again, especially with very small increment linear motors, is not very high. Um and so it seems to me that that sort of pairing, uh, although irregular on a traditional machining center with, with high cutting forces, uh, like, a, like a VMC, seems to be paired fairly well with this horizontal EDM. Yeah, it, uh, it's certainly one of those applications where it makes a lot of sense. Uh, one of the things that just kind of occurred to me, so this is horizontally guiding the wire, uh, mm -hmm. but it's also says it can shoot a hole like thread the wire into a hole as small as 30 microns which that just jumped out uh and then 15 micron wire diameter so when you're a vertical format wire machine you're kind of using gravity to your advantage and then kind of encasing the wire with water and using the water to guide it into the hole how does this work on a horizontal machine how do you I assume it has to span, you know, quite a distance. Uh, how do you how do you get the wire from one end to the other into the one thousandths hole? And uh, <laughs> I, I would. Uh, do you have any insights? Have you seen it thread? Yeah, I, I've seen this machine in action actually um, in Japan, and it's pretty bizarre because the first time you look at it you're like oh great a horizontal wire edm and exactly that thought process comes through it's like how on earth does it re-thread and to add the 30 micron hole diameter re-threading capability is pretty insane you couldn't it'd be very difficult to do that um uh, with th those sorts of clearances ball clearances on a vertical wire machine as well um so let's say you had like a 0 0.25 millimeter hole and you're trying to thread 0. 21 wire or 0.22 wire or 0.2 whatever it is um that's difficult so the way they do it on this upn01 is you have a guiding tube that's actuated by an air cylinder that uh, is connected from the upper head or at least the right hand head and you have an identical one on the left hand head and so what they do is they come they actuate and they come very close to the uh, the plate. So there is maybe mm. a 
uh, 0.5 millimeter gap between the plate and the where the tube ends, the kind of guiding tube, and they pump water through uh, the right-hand head to the left-hand head. And then you have a small sensing system that more or less kind of touches that plate where the two um, heads uh, create a seal on the plate. And then you shoot the wire through the guiding tube aided by the water. So <clears throat> uh, it, you're more or less creating a tube through the whole plate. And that's mm-hmm. one way you can thread it horizontally. But then the other way where you can guide the wire very close to where the hole the starting hole actually is um and one of the makino reps said they had something like a uh, a 98 percent wire rethread success rate on that 30 micron hole and so they had this test they just kind of um had all of these start holes and they just keep rethreading through them and uh it it's mind-boggling yeah that's extremely impressive with those wire sizes uh because i mean it's like seven microns per side clearance mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. wires shooting through so hats off to them that's uh that's pretty cool now the prerequisite to all of that and the prerequisite to getting that sort of repeatability is that um this is very much a uh, late stage operation machine in the sense that <clears throat> it would be very rare to see this machine cutting blanks or uh, um, I guess anything with no preparation done beforehand this is maybe like an op 3 or op 4 machine where you're cutting something to final size and that's nearly the last thing or sometimes the last thing um, done to the part uh, simply because the work piece itself has to be flat ground and it has to be um, very precisely aligned in its um, parallelism and it's uh i guess obviously tram to the machine axes because the only way to get that sort of precision and reliability and repeatability is if you don't have to worry about any other factors in mm-hmm. the workpiece and uh, one thing with wire edm is that the the roughness and the preparation of the top surface has large impact in how the rest of the cut forms so back onto those large um, large machines like the U6 that are used to cut um, uh, the 3D printed... What do you call them? They're not casts. They're prints. Prints, yeah, okay. <laughs> the 3D printed prints. Um, the top surface, if you will, of the cut is constantly changing and it's also constantly changing in surface roughness or at least it's not uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get huge problems with wire breakage and uh, accuracy because the cut per se is constantly changing, and yes. the entry point of the on the top surface as well as the exit point on the bottom surface has a large part to play in how the rest of the wire actually tracks in the cut. So with this um, UPN zero one machine, uh, it, it is quite fascinating because I don't truly know what the the end use is like i've seen some micro molding and micro mechanical molding applications where they're cutting very very small profiles uh in plates something that you can't really achieve with um any other uh, machining technology especially with you know small corner radiuses that you can achieve with a 15 micron wire Uh, but beyond that it seems like this is one of those machines that it's you wouldn't you wouldn't expect them selling hundreds, right? No, I have to imagine these are built to order or very low volume. Interestingly enough, I did see one on eBay a few years ago. <laughs> it was very low hours, like and shockingly cheap. And it's one of those things like I don't know what I'd do with it, but I, I, I yeah. you know, it, it it was interesting to see it go so cheap. I I kind of um kept drawing parallels with this machine and the Microlution machine. Uh, that horizontal, very small horizontal high-speed milling machine. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, both have extremely tight work envelopes, and I think you're right. Like, you're not sticking raw stock into either machine. 
mm-hmm. you have a very strict process um, and you're sticking a component in that's mostly done and performing a few operations. This is definitely not a job shop machine. No. And another parallel between those two machines is that I also, we, I think you showed me even the two Microlution machines that came up on eBay as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I almost bought the one, but I ended up with the Mori, which is more applicable to what I'm doing. But mm-hmm. uh, there, there's a guy on Instagram with a Microlution, and he does some pretty good work mold-wise with it. Um, M5 Micro, who just bought a Kern Micro. If, uh, I don't know, the, the Microlutions, they do sell pretty cheap. If I ever see one come up again, I might jump on it. You're the small machine king. I feel like every small machine needs to be owned by you. <laughs> I like machines that can fit through a Mandor. <laughs> um, one of one of the podcast names that when we were sort of starting this up that my fiance suggested was Big Boys and Little Toys. And I thought that was really funny. <laughs> um, in case you haven't seen... Adam is a very tall guy and um, I need to lose weight. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's, that's, the, that's the joke there. I, I have weight as well. <laughs> anyway, very politically um, transitioning back to the Makino. Uh, one thing I did want to bring up was that this machine also has an integrated C-axis. And in a horizontal machine, the best way to think about it uh, is that it's sort of like a RAM EDM uh, or a Sinker EDM where the C-axis can rotate the electrode. And uh, if you take a RAM EDM and just put a left and a right head for wire feeding, that's what this UPN machine is. And so that's super interesting because you can uh, have some very creative fixturing. And a lot of the fixturing you can kind of see on the Makina website is with a... Um, yaw and pitch sort of uh, adjustable uh, uh, precision flexure-based vice and uh, all on an Aroa palette. So you can even palette change or workpiece change inside the machine. And the other thing that this kind of made me think about was using the machine to cut um, uh, cutting tools. So... You've done some work recently with uh, some porting and some reamers. Unfortunately, could this be, machine be <laughs> unfortunately? Could this machine be used for that? Uh, yeah, I think it could. Um, one of the porting reamers I have was definitely wire EDM'd, and I had to tune it up. Uh, it was not cut on a nice wire EDM. It was very rough and not really leaving a good finish as a result. Um, but yeah, I. I the few other horizontal wire machines I've seen are for PCD reamer kind of work. and mm-hmm. But this seems... Usually you don't see really small wire diameter and that kind of work. Whereas this mm. seems like it was built specifically for small wire work as well. So mm. I, I'm with you, I'm a little confused as to what purpose this was exactly built for. Uh, looks like they mm. did have something very specific in mind. Mm. Maybe it's like micro tooling, like the sub one millimeter reamers. Yeah, that's very possible. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure how large the market is for. Uh, <laughs> yeah, one millimeter formed reamers, but who knows? If anyone knows anything about this machine, please get in contact. Um, we'd love to hear you talk about it. All right, this uh, episode, we are doing our precision problem segment. And uh, for my precision problem this week, I had a very tight corner radius on some ground parts. So the corner radius was five thousandths of an inch, which, give me one second, is 127 microns. And is in the corner of a hardened A2 part, which... Traditionally, this wouldn't be that big of a deal. I have enough experience doing that feature. I know what wheel to use, how fast to run it, the approach, that I could sink this tight corner radius in and not really worry about it. 
Uh, but I had 30 parts to do, and wheel breakdown was a concern. I didn't want, as I'm doing these parts, that wheel to slowly wear and create a bigger than 5 thou corner radius. So I needed a way to keep my eye on whether or not that corner was smaller than than that 5 thou mark. And uh, specifically, I needed something that I had on hand. Uh, most places would handle that via optical comparator with a 50x lens or maybe even a 100. And that would be a really good way of checking that. Unfortunately, my shop isn't uh, outfitted as much as it needs to be. So what I came up with is the parts were L-shaped. And the radius being in the corner of the L, I made a key which fills out that L and makes it like a square profile. And then on that corner of the key, I ground a 5,000th chamfer. And you plug it into the L and then you can run an indicator over it and it should sit flush to both sides and create a perfect square. If it's sitting up, it means the corner chamfer is too big. And uh, I was able to run through all 30 then and find, and luckily, you know, worked pretty well. I thought I would have issues with that many parts, and I didn't. But uh, I'm going to keep that little key around. Uh, just it's a good way to, f you could even feel it slide into the corner and seat nicely, and you knew everything was to size. Uh, the issue was, how do I guarantee this five thousandths chamfer is five thousandths? And so I found a decent method on the surface plate where holding it in a V-block, I had a perfectly square edge. And I was able to figure out the height of that and then do a little trig and figure out where my end height for that chamfer should be. And uh, that worked out pretty well, I thought. So, nice little gauge that'll go in the box and in 12 years I'll need it <laughs> once more. So, How often do you make uh, sort of your own inspection tools and things like that? Um, I make ones that I'll never show to anyone because they're a little crude almost weekly. Just like little something to get you through or what's really common in my shop is a like specific height parallel. So I was doing these parts with a lot of overhang and they like, again, another L shape and grinding them was a little difficult because so much unsupported material. So I made these very specific height buttons that I glued onto the bottom. And then when it sat on the magnet, it rested and yeah, I could grind it easily. Uh, so I, there's, there's a lot of stuff like that in my life. And, uh, that's, that's kind of like why it comes to a tool maker though. You know, we don't necessarily just follow the blueprint. We have to use our, our background and our, our judgment to figure out how to make the part. And when you're generating the, the five thousandths uh, radius in the wheel, do you use that radius dresser that you explained in the Superb Tour video? Oh, I, I guess I should uh, be a little more forthcoming here. So it's on the print, it says can be max 5,000. Uh -huh. So they're not actually looking for a 5,000 radius. They just don't want it to be bigger than that. I see. Um, so what you do is you just more or less dress your wheel sharp cornered yep. and put it in. And if you look at it, it actually still creates a pretty nice round radius because wheels are packed together grains of sand essentially so it's it's about as round as the average of the grains of sand on that outer corner and really i i don't have the optical comparator to check but it would probably be you know two to three thousandths of an inch radius if uh based on the wheel i was using so wheel corner radius is a direct result mm -hmm. of what grit wheel you're using a coarser wheel is going to have bigger grains of sand and when you dress to that corner it it knocks out it doesn't like shape the individual grand it'll knock them out so 
So if you need a tight radius, you go to a high grit wheel. And the last thing you'll do is you'll grind it to the top of the tolerance or like a micron or two over. And then you'll put on this tight grit wheel and just kiss out that corner and blend it. And uh, so it, uh, a lot of people are probably saying, well, why doesn't he just put an undercut in? In, in a lot of guiding applications in the tool and die trade, you're dealing with thin metal sheets or even foils. And so an undercut, it, the, the material is so much smaller than the undercut, it could actually get lost in the undercut and it's not properly guiding. So you, you do truly need a near sharp corner. Um, and 5,000 is kind of like the, the easy practical limit. Like if I see 5,000 on a print, I go, okay, I'll have to give it a little attention. Uh, much tighter than 5,000, I'm going to think about if I want to do it or not. So that's kind of like the the practical limit for a lot of manual grind shops. Yeah, with with the die project that I've been working on that you designed, um, that's one thing I really quickly learned because that was the first time I'd ever seen a progressive uh, die and it's a very simple one really. It's just stamping out washes from thin material. And... Uh, the one thing I noticed very quickly was the callouts on the radii and the chamfers. And in my world, it's very unusual to see a, uh, I guess, anything outside of an aesthetic chamfer or corner radius. But I saw these parts and the prints for these parts that Adam had designed. And I said, well, why, why, why do these have um, sort of a tight... Not that they were actually tight, but rather specific edge treatments. And now that all makes sense because the actual material itself is able to get lost in in all these kind of corners and undercuts or even guided in the wrong way. And the the chamfers Josh is talking about are are lead-in chamfers. They're anywhere from 10 to 20 degrees based on application. And the problem is, is... Again, it's like on the end of an L-shape extrusion. So you have two chamfers merging into one another. And if you've ever tried to grind that, you'll quickly learn that because of the the nature of it, it's actually not a 45-degree angle anymore. It's a, a tilted plane. And yet they're, they're very challenging to make correctly. I suspect you'll just do it on your 5-axis, mm-hmm. which is easy. But in you know a manual grind environment those can be tricky it usually ends up you have your part on an angle plate angle plate is then twisted on the table and then on your wheel you have an angle dressed onto the side of your wheel and the bottom of it's flat and that's how you produce those lead-in chamfers another edge prep that i had not really seen before and for anyone that's kind of involved in press tooling it's this is probably quite basic but was uh it was the edge preparation of the... And now, you'll correct me on the technical term here, Adam, but on the holes that uh, allow the slug or the center part of the, the washer or the waste, really, to fall through. And uh, on this plate that kind of um, backs all the punches... Oh, sorry, the dies, you specified a sharp corner. And in most of the work I do, you don't really want sharp corners because they're frustrating to you know, keep sharp or you cut yourself on them. But this had to be sharp. And why was that? Chamfers can actually scrap apart in the die world uh, if you're not careful. So this plate, it's called a backing plate, and it goes underneath like the die inserts. So when, and this is especially important on thinner parts, when you stamp that slug through, they don't, always fall there's enough tightness in the die insert that sometimes they pack up in there and they just generally get pushed down slowly and you can end up with some pile up sometimes and if there's a chamfer and remember in a lot of die environments everything's kind of running oil on it so everything's sticky to begin with and then you might have air blast in there as well if there's a chamfer it creates a area where you have two flat plates with like a lead-in chamfer going to nowhere mm. and a, a thin like 60 micron piece of foil can actually get wedged into that chamfer whereas if it's a dead sharp corner nothing can get in there 
So you have to kind of keep your eye out on... For you, it's a hand press. It wouldn't have been a big deal. You'd just been like, oh, hey, the slugs aren't dropping and fixed it. But when you're, you know, making several hundred hits a minute, you don't have that luxury. So. Another question I had in regards to your um, gauge that you made, when you were using it to check, did you, uh, did you always check it on the surface plate or did you check it both on the machine or in the setup as well as on the surface plate? So the machine setup is very repeatable. Okay. It's just on a magnet up against a rib. So there wasn't a lot of need to check it in the machine. Mm-hmm. Um, you certainly could have, but it, it, it's on and off the magnet in five seconds, just really fast. So I just slid it over to the magnet or the granite and popped my gauge on and indicated it real quick. And that seemed to work fine. The reason why I ask is there's a lot to be said for uh, measurement and inspection equipment that can help you measure things in process uh it's all well and good to have a cmm mm-hmm. but if the cmm requires you to tear down your whole setup and yes. prevents you from re uh establishing a datum or something like that on the machine it's a good tool but i think it limits it, you, its use right yeah and had i had like a full inspection arsenal I think my preferred method to check that would actually be like a contour tracer. Have you ever seen those? No. It drags a stylus across the contour of the part, much like a prothermometer. And sometimes they're even called prothermometers, but it's not measuring surface roughness. It's measuring surface profile. Wow. And it then, the old ones, it was through like a mechanical lever arm would magnify at 50x. And it would uh, it would give you like a two D graph onto graph paper uh, of what your part shape was. Uh, the new ones, it's all digital, and it just gives you like a DXF file. But um, those are really really good because optical comparators, anything of length. If you're trying to look down mm-hmm. like a seventy five millimeter part to see the corner, you can get some weird shadowing uh, in you don't always get the crispest of image um, whereas this it's pretty exact what's going on all right josh what was your precision problem this week so it's sort of related to a part of our discussion that we had just then about my press my press project and um I accidentally cut a bore slightly too small and uh, it's very rare that I do this. That's obviously a joke. I do it all the time. But this part, I didn't really want to scrap. It was um, a lot of work had all gone into it and uh, the, it's, it's difficult to get the material. I had to ship it in from Singapore. And uh, long story short, I pretty much stopped the entire project for about two months trying to think in the background of a way to uh, save this part. And uh, the reason why it was so tricky to uh, bore out this hole slightly larger was that A, it was a very small amount undersize. It was about 10 micron undersize. B, it was in in a fairly tall bore. So I think the part thickness was about 30 millimeters and it was a a 10 millimeter hole I'm not sure it could it could be even 40 millimeters um, and then the last part of it was that it had a pretty tight call out on the location of of the part and um, it's true I probably could have gotten away with something that was outside of the tolerance of the call out but uh, with this project I want to try to eliminate as many variables as possible because uh, it's just so new and I wanted to make some parts that were, you know, within tolerance. So the solution I had was to create my own ID lap. And uh, truth be told, there were actually a couple of bores that, a couple of different sized bores that needed to be lapped. And one was 22 millimeters and one was 10 millimeters. So I made a set of, well, not really a set, but just two of these ID laps that I could charge with diamond powder and more or less run in a drill press and expand the bores up by about 10 micron and 
the reason why I'm bringing it up as a kind of uh, my precision problem for this podcast was that it just went so well. Uh, I'm not used to things going so well and uh, I took 10 microns off without really changing the location of this hole um, very effortlessly. The hardest part was actually making the lap and um, I'll post up a picture of how the kind of lap looks like and uh, I think not not that I have a lot of these sort of parts but combined with the far better uh, surface uh, roughness on the inside of the bore as well as how quickly it went this might be a workflow for taking things off the wire EDM and just bringing um, bringing bores right into in. the lap yeah exactly right into the lap mm-hmm. and getting them to a fit I wouldn't really do it if I had to um, if I had to make like a profile it'd be very difficult obviously to lap in like a star shape or a square shape nearly impossible mm-hmm. But for round uh, parts that kind of have either a press fit or a sliding fit, it seemed to work really well. If I always had a plate that needed to like slide on and off dowels somewhat frequently, like you had to take this die apart once a week, mm-hmm. and you'd do so by lifting the plate off the dowels, I would uh, I would have them wired to nominal, which doesn't really slide, mm-hmm. and then I'd lap two to three, four microns out of it to the point where it's that nice running slip fit. Uh, and it's it's amazing what getting rid of that wire EDM finish in yes. that dowel hole can do in terms of how nice everything fits. Um, I always kind of like when they talk about finishes, wire EDMs can achieve. It, it is technically mechanically that smooth, but it's like matte versus high gloss Yes, is the best way I can explain it. And it's just... It's not rough, but it it's not glossy. It doesn't shine. It doesn't have a dowel slide into it beautifully smooth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's amazing what a little lapping can do for a whole fit. And one thing I want to comment on that is that the YEDM machine can bring it in to a size quite, quite easily. Um, but getting getting that... I'm not even sure if it's recast or if it's some sort of deposition on the surface out of the way and bringing the polish in um, was so easy because it was like a five-pass finish. You know, those five skim cuts on the bore. Um, And I think that was the key to to this process working. If I'd, you know, gone from like a a single pass that was still fairly accurate on the... the, um, on the whole size, trying to lap in the surface roughness from like a, a one pass or a single pass finish to the same level would have been much more time consuming. And realistically, I probably would have blown the tolerance. So it's not um, it's not like a one size fits all solution. It's not like you can replace the accuracy of a, or the interpol- interpolation accuracy of a wire EDM with ID lapping. Um, you still end up having to do all of the passes and the surface finishes to get the the lapping to a small time level so and also a small um, material removal level so you don't blow the whole bore um, but that's super interesting that you did that on the on the plates do you do that with anything else with the press fits or is it too risky uh, a lot of times you might have to end up doing it uh, so here's a problem is most engineers were drawing or assemblies everything was like the nominal size so they had three plates stacked it would all be a 12 millimeter hole and it's like okay that's not necessarily what we want we want one of those holes to be a smaller than 12 millimeters and we want two of those holes to be slightly bigger than 12 millimeters but because that's how they were all modeled when it went to edm they all were made 12 millimeters uh, so a 12 millimeter dial still fits pretty snug in a 12 millimeter hole. That wasn't a big deal, but you would routinely have to open up the the two holes you needed to fit well, um, and that was something like really took a lot of convincing from the tool room to get the design department to stop doing that. Mm. Um, and once we like showed them, hey, we're cutting exactly what the model is, not you know 
anything else, it clicked. And then they started drawing the whole size for their plates that needed to run, you know, five microns bigger than nominal. And then that problem went away. But, uh, um, no, Superb had a nice collection of laps. I bought uh, Pimento Hone off of Killian, and I'm slowly like trying to find a nice drill press. And I want to, I have a few feet of space between the Haas and the Morisaki, <laughs> and I think I could fit something in there, and I think I could get a drill press in there and make it like a dedicated whole lapping station. Mm. And um, I, I hard cut. Again, 30 pieces. They all had a uh, 20 millimeter bore in them. And it was H7 tolerance, which is pretty loose. Mm-hmm. It's, I think in English it's like plus 7 tenths for that size hole. Minus nothing. And I just hard cut them right to size and it went fine. But uh, that'd be one of those things like if I could hard cut them to the low limit and mm. then run a lap through them. And I think it would make a nicer looking part. Um I, I, it might be a smidge rounder. I did them on the Mori, so I suspect they're very round. But it's a, a lapping station like that, I think, would be really nice to have. With your hard cutting, especially when you're doing bores, do you uh, aim, for example, in that H7 tolerance, do you aim for the middle of the tolerance? Yeah, because I wanted them to more or less come off the machine and be done. I parked them right in the middle. And there was a cross hole on that one. So mm. I deburred the cross hole by hand. But then I had also bought in one of those flex hones, which gets like, sometimes when you deburr something, there's still a little bit of a burr, uh, like at the edge of your 45 angle. Mm-hmm. So I bought one of those flex hones, fine grit, and just brushed it through it at the last step just to clear off anything. And the the 20 millimeter pen I had just sunk in there beautifully so last week we didn't have a company spotlight we tried to record a segment on Heidenhain but we thought we'd give it a rest until some more information came out and some more stories came out but this week we're returning with the segment with a small very short spotlight on a company called La Pierrette. And I'm not a French speaker, so I've tried my best with that. But long story short, they are a Swiss company that specialize in the manufacture of synthetic monocrystalline jewel bearings. Uh, Long story short, a watch has really at minimum maybe 16 16 bearings, uh, jewel bearings in it. And they are the... Uh, I guess the locating as well as the running um, uh, contact points for the axles and the wheels or gears in the watch that transfer motion from one end of the, the mechanism to the other. So the accuracy as well as the, um, the, uh, the low friction coefficient of these parts is critical towards the timekeeping of a watch and that's kind of the the driver for the precision aspect and so this company is over 100 years old and they've been manufacturing these bearings in nearly the exact same way for those 100 years obviously uh, things have changed in terms of uh, metrology as well as um, automation but the fundamental is still the same. So these bearings, the largest bearing in a watch is probably around two and a half millimeters. That's kind of the largest pocket watch sized bearing. Um, that's the OD and the ID of the smallest bearing uh, that I've seen is about 35 micron. I think maybe possibly possibly even smaller, but 35 micron is kind of what I've seen as the lower end of the limit. And one obvious uh big uh, driver as well in this in this uh, design of a bearing is the internal surface roughness of the ID oh, sorry the, the surface roughness of the ID and it has to be mirror finished because you have either a rolling friction um, actually it's always a rolling friction happening and so your pivot or your pinion has to roll on the inside long story short 
watch the video. It's fantastic. They go through the whole process of how they make these parts and they make millions, millions of these rubies to sub-micron tolerances. Uh, so Adam, you saw the video. What what stood out? I How... It's not outdated because it, it still works effectively, but I think a process engineer would either have a ball or go insane like working there because <laughs> at some point they're just dangling these rubies down a string and the like cavitation of it sliding down this string is what produces this lead-in radius on the bore and that's the process is you just run them across the string and it it all seems just very <laughs> hard to document hard to put a pin in uh, there mm-hmm. i don't i like, what are the settings there? Is there any kind of string tension? Is the angle of the string? And from a modern manufacturing perspective, it looks like it'd be a very, very daunting challenge to to build something that's robust that you could put people into quickly with not a ton of training. I, I think the people who make these have been making them for a very long time. And, uh, you know, it's one of those situations where craftspeople are are what you're dealing with not necessarily manufacturing personnel or you know whatever the process engineers you're you're dealing with people who have dedicated their their working career Mm. to this one one thing um which i don't know i always find that interesting but uh it's uh yeah challenging looking parts to make the one part that Adam was talking about there was uh, a bearing used for the, uh, the oscillating mass called a balance wheel in a watch. And that's the thing that kind of goes tick-tock and generates, your, um, generates the time in between the seconds, right? And uh, this oscillating mass is held in the smallest of all of the pinions in all of the axles. And... Uh, it has the tightest or the highest requirement on its running smoothness. And so the internal diameter is not really um, a diameter, rather it's a, uh, they call it an ogive or an olive shape sometimes. And uh, if you can imagine an hourglass, it's kind of like the inverse of an hourglass where you have two radii that sort of match up. And so the theory is that you have a contact ring instead of a contact band uh, on this pinion that sits inside the bearing. Uh, so you're not really defining the uh, axial movement, it's just the radial movement and the radial movement only on a ring instead of a band. And that's where you get the very low friction, etc., etc. And how you create that, uh, that internal radius, you see, uh, you see in, in the video where the, the ruby is kind of guided on a slight angle and it's rotating um, around this wire this piano wire which is also fascinating because that piano wire has to be manufactured to a very tight tolerance as well with a little bit of diamond slurry just kind of being gently put on on the wire uh, as it's rotating so it's kind of like an id lapping Um, but long story short and i know i said long story short lots of times but you could talk about this all day if you wanted to But the one thing that I took away from the video was how they get precision in large volumes. Um, What did did you reckon about that? I I think they treat it like ball bearings or precision balls. Uh, You just make a lot of them, and then you have a pretty reliable way of sorting the good ones. Is when you buy these, are there a range? Like, say you need a one millimeter bore, can you buy in micron increments on either side of that or is it do they only offer a specific size you can buy um a range but it's very rare usually you you okay. let the jewel be nominal and then you just modify your axle yeah i i i mean i don't really know anything about how they're making it but yeah i, I based on the process of just kind of running wire through the bore i I feel like they they do that for so much time and then check them and maybe do it some more and and uh, 
kind of sort the ones that are exactly what they need. And I, I don't think you're dialing in and hitting a size like you are when you run a CNC mill. Uh, you're just kind of applying this treatment to them and seeing what comes out the other side. There's something to be said about how that volume is created. And it's not in in kind of like a... I don't want to say a machinist would think, but that's how a machinist, I think, thinks. Whereas you have to hit the dimension and then you check the part and, you know, if it's not, you modify it and so on. This is just make many and sort all and your precision comes from your ability to sort the measurement systems that they have in place and that was what was fascinating i mean one of the shots you can see they have a bunch of key systems um i i think the downside with those can systems is the resolution on the camera um so i doubt they would be measuring the id of of those jewels but definitely the od uh, as well as a lot of the the fixtures and jigs and all sorts of stuff that they could use in the processes but also you saw a lot of um kind of uh automated measurement um you know you'd have like a, a rotating uh actually what we'll do we'll just put a little link in in the in the Perfect. instagram page of this but you had a little air blast that uh after a camera, you know, took a photo and did the photo measurement, an air blast would either would push the part out, either determining it was in spec or not in spec. Obviously, not in spec if the part gets pushed out of the trolley, or the or the kind of um, uh, machine conveyor system. And it's it's just fascinating that, at least to me as a user of these parts, parts, it's fascinating that that's the method they're made. In my head, I sort of uh, glorified the process, thinking that you know, of ten thousand parts, if they made, or ten thousand bearings, if they made them, all ten thousand would be correct. But realistically, it's it's probably a much lower success rate than that, and uh, it's all about the sorting process. One one thing I did find interesting is the area these are getting made looks pretty old like 1960s just a lot of old dirty machinery covered in slurry uh yet the qc department everybody's in white lab coats with brand new measuring <laughs> systems and and so yeah you could definitely see an emphasis on quality control but like some of these wire machines it like it would feed forward some wire and then oscillate it back and forth and then feed forward um i like the reason it's so old is probably because you can't buy that stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. It just it looked all very bespoke or and um, really interesting manufacturing. I always like when you see like a, a a very exact process that only is for one thing. Uh, I, I really like specialist. I guess you see it in the manufacture of ball bearings as well of the races and the balls themselves. It's all specialized equipment. And it's all uh, kind of stuff that, A, you can't get on the market, but B, the person that made it probably doesn't make them anymore as well because it's just like a one-time project, you know. Uh, and another thing that stood out to me in, in, in that video was how much diamond they really use. And <laughs> they've got diamond slitting saws and they've got diamond slurry and they've got diamond kind of um, uh, impregnated sheets. And uh, I guess this is on my mind because I've, you know, I, I bought a ring for my fiance that had a diamond in it and all the rest, and I used diamond cutting tools. But diamonds are cheap. And th that's another fascinating sort of um, consequence of the industrialization of, of everything is that you have a very useful cutting tool in this carbon-based cutting tool right good diamond that's used everywhere and that obviously granted it's a very different sort of diamond than the one would that would be in a ring but there's one shot where they're kind of panning over this kind of field of diamond powder probably thousands of carats worth and uh it's probably costing them like dollars you know not not much yeah, in the grand scheme of their operation, I feel like uh, 
it's uh, not a big line to worry about for them. But I just I enjoyed the dichotomy between the two departments. Uh, the the people making them were just like covered in oil, and and then these like pearly white lab coat QC technicians, and I, I don't know. I I gotta imagine there's a rift in the break room. <laughs> Probably not a well-mended company culture there. <laughs> the ski trip, the company ski trip is probably, yeah. uh, they'd go in separate buses or something like that. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Precision Microcast. I thought this episode was a blast, and Adam and I had a lot of fun recording it. And if you also had fun listening to it, let us know. Uh, Send us a message or leave a comment on our Instagram page, the.precision.microcast, or on either of our personal pages, Adam the Machinist and Nicholas Hacker Watch. So thank you very much for tuning in. We really appreciate your listening and putting out an hour aside of your day to uh to tune in with us and we'll see you next episode thanks bye